Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 15th, 2015, and my guest is Leonard Wong, a research professor in the Strategic Studies Institute at the United States Army War College. He is the author with Stephen Garris of a recent paper on military culture, Lying to Ourselves, Dishonesty in the Army Profession, which is our topic for today. Lenny, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. I'm going to start with a quote from the uh, summary of the paper. It says the following. This study found that many Army officers, after repeated exposure to the overwhelming demands and the associated need to put their honor on the line to verify compliance, have become ethically numb. As a result, an officer's signature and word have become tools to maneuver through the Army bureaucracy rather than being symbols of integrity and honesty. Sadly, much of the deception that occurs in the profession of arms is encouraged and sanctioned by the military institution as subordinates are forced to prioritize which requirements will actually be done to standard and which will only be reported as done to standard. As a result, untruthfulness is surprisingly common in the U.S. military, even though members of the profession are loath to admit it. And the summary closes, the Army profession rests upon a bedrock of trust, This monograph attempts to bolster that trust by calling attention to the deleterious culture the Army has inadvertently created. So before we delve into the paper, I'd like to get some of the background. How did it come about, and uh, where did the evidence for the claims that that you make in the summary, where does that come from? Well, the the study started uh, actually uh, almost a decade ago. I did a different study uh, looking at how we're developing innovation in uh, the Army's junior officers, and uh, at that point – uh, I went around and uh, with a team of officers that we tried to catalog every single requirement we put on company commanders. So those are uh, junior officers who lead about 150 people. And what we discovered is that there's just too many requirements that can be literally accomplished in a given time. So uh, we said if you look, add up all the requirements, uh, it exceeds the amount of time that uh, company commanders have to execute them. And so that was the end of that. But always in the back of my mind has always been, so what happens? Yeah, uh, what? You, they can't do it all. How do you make then, 25 hours go into 24? Exactly. Yeah. So, so how do we deal with all this? And so that's always been in the back of my mind, but it wasn't the primary focus of that study. And so then the question became of, so what do we do? But then I was also reflecting personally in that uh, the Army, like the rest of American society, has become an audit culture. In other words, uh, we, we measure everything and we, we audit a lot of things. And so, um, so I'm subjected to a lot of things like, uh, have you, uh, read the, uh, information awareness, you know, 1900 word, uh, permission before you get on your computer. And I always book, yes, I have when I really haven't. You're the only uh, one. Uh, <laughs> you know, it says you by checking would, this box, you you agree that you have read all the yeah exactly right or uh, uh, you know a firm in England uh, they they offered free Wi-Fi and they put out a this is an experiment they did and part of the uh, agreement was I I agree to give over my firstborn yep and and everyone signed <laughs> it and so so it's very common so it's not like the army is so weird uh, it's it's we're just like society and uh, the army has created that and uh, and so what I discovered was. Um, 
are we kidding ourselves? And so then uh, my colleague, Stephen Garris, and I said, you know, we should really go around and ask people um, how they're dealing with all these requirements. And so we interviewed captains, which are junior officers at Fort Benning and Fort Lee. Then we interviewed majors, which are mid-range officers at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and then colonels and lieutenant colonels here at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And then we also went to the Pentagon and, uh, and listened to all those people. And uh, it was very eye-opening and uh, very uh, disheartening. And yet uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of goodness out there, too. And how many people do you, did you interview? Uh, Roughly. It, was, it wasn't really interviews. It was discussions. And so we didn't sit down and, and force people. But roughly, uh, I'd say about 120 and when you talk about requirements, uh, I think in everyday English, we would call uh, them rules and regulations. These are a mix right. of compliance forms that people have to fill out that attest to having accomplished some task or having something on hand. Give us a measure of the range of, 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 of paperwork and, and requirements that we're talking about. Well, it could be, it, yeah, we call it uh, directed training is where this whole thing starts. It goes beyond that, but it starts with directed training. So, um Directed training would be everything from you need to be qualified on your weapon to you need to uh, sit through a class on uh, sexual assault or you need to view an online course on the dangers of bath salts uh, or you Did you need say to baths? Did you say bath salts? Bath salts. Why, why would there be? Is that a joke or is that serious? That's serious. What, what, uh, what's the worry there? Because uh, the youth in America are, uh, you know, being afflicted with being enamored by bath salts, hmm. using those as uh, artificial stimulants. And, okay. and so someone said, you know, we got a lot of young people in the Army. They need mandatory training. Make it a training requirement that they have to have annual training on bath salts or human trafficking or the dangers of, uh, you know, uh, cyber un- awareness or anything. So... And the problem with the Army is, is that we're, we're very – we like to create requirements. We like, we have, we're great ideas uh, generators. And so more and more of these requirements get placed on those at the bottom, but none are ever taken away. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so yeah. – so this includes things that are directly related to combat, things that are related to the culture of the unit and the organization itself. There's also, having read the paper, it's things like um, supplies on hand, what you did with cash you were given. So these are both uh, verifying that things happen plus keeping track of stuff, right? Exactly. And uh, it, it's, it's a wide range. of You have your administrative things, but you also have things that are related to the mission. You're related to this. Uh, are you taking care of your soldiers? Um, and so we, we – we, you know, it's the system trying to do what leaders normally do, and, and, but then it, it just becomes overwhelming uh, to those on the bottom. And so what happens is that those on the bottom are left making the decisions, which ones am I going to do or which ones am I just going to say I did because I can't do them all. And give me your overall impression. Again, it's, it's by definition anecdotal. You didn't survey – Oh, you know, twenty five percent of the of the U.S. military. Right. Uh, you you talk to a bunch of folks. Uh, how representative are the stories that you report in the paper of the hundred and twenty? First of all, and uh, then how representative do you think those hundred and twenty are of the military as a whole? I think it's uh, fairly representative, and the reason I get that is. Actually, I think it's very representative, and the reason I think that is because after the paper came out, it was now we're shifting to a different topic here, but 
it was very interesting because at first, exactly as predicted, uh, it really riled some people um, because who who wants to be you know to be told you know we we re- re- routinely evade the truth. Uh, nobody wants to be told that. But then as time went by, then suddenly people started to not deceive themselves and say, yes, we've fallen into this, just like the rest of America falls into it. But we hold ourselves to a higher standard and, and we're letting that standard go. And so then people began talking about it. And now it's being pushed not by those on the bottom, but now it's being pushed by those on the top. And so is it representative? I think it's pretty good indicator it is representative because now it's being pushed by the highest levels of leadership, not just those on the bottom. And I guess in some empirical sense, the fact that compliance is 100 percent compliance is impossible and yet you routinely discover that suggests that something is – you routinely find that in the reporting suggests that something has gone, has gone wrong. Right. If compliance is impossible, <laughs> then, then all these good stats can't be. Something, something's wrong. And the original uh, – I, I found it fascinating. You talk in the paper about uh, that most of the people, when you initially raise the possibility that there's this dishonesty going on, they, they're very uh, hostile to that. They bristle. They, they push their defensive. Right. Uh, but then it emerges that, well – so talk, talk about that process, how, how that would come about in the conversations. Well, like I said, these were discussions, so they really weren't interviews. And so it would be a group of eight, eight people or ten people, and I'd say, uh, I'd, you know, we'd, we'd talk about um, how many requirements there are out there, and isn't it, you know, there, there's, there's so many, and they'd all agree with that. And then I'd say, so do you guys ever lie? And right then, you could hear a pin drop. <laughs> um, because who in the world would ever say, right. of, course of course I do? Yeah. And, and, and that's what I was trying to get. And so then I'd, they'd say, of course not, you know, and especially Army officers. Army officers are very moral people because – uh, the business that the army is in, you cannot have people that you don't trust, and uh, and so then we got it. Lenny, you're a former army officer yes. yourself. That's yes. important, right? Okay. Yes, you're not I like am. me. You're not like an academic who's <laughs> never been in the army. That's. I'd like uh, to say I'm <laughs> like you, Russ, but yeah. <laughs> so sorry. Go um, ahead. No, but so army officers have a moral identity of extremely high because uh, trust is critical to soldiers and trust is critical to society. The whole profession is built on trust. Um, and so for me to say, do you guys ever lie? It's like, you gotta be, what, why are you asking that? And then we start saying, so how do you deal with all these requirements? And then, well, then they start saying, well, you got to learn to prioritize. What does that mean? And so then we'd push it further and further and it came down to, well, and then I literally had some people put their head in their hands and say, okay, fine, I lie. And, uh, but nobody wants to say it because what we do is we cover it up with, uh, euphemisms um, or we offer rationalizations. And, and what's going on is um, there's something that Ann Tenbrussel out of Notre Dame came up with, a term called ethical fading. And what ethical fading is is when the moral implications, the, uh, the, the clear this is right and wrong, when all that starts fading into the background and it stops being an ethical decision, it stops being an ethical dilemma, and then turns into a, an administrative decision or a way to do business. And so um, when we click on uh, agree that we just read the 16 pages of lawyer speak when we really didn't, we don't think of that as lying. We just think that's just what everyone does. That's the way you do business. That's the way I get my free Wi-Fi. And uh, it's not an ethical dilemma. And And nobody's hurt. Nobody's hurt by it. In fact, you you give a lot of examples in the paper, which uh, longtime listeners will recognize as 
classic cases of self-deception, an issue we talk a lot about here on Econ Talk, which is, uh, well, I didn't do it for me. I did it for the troops. And talk about right. some of the examples, some of the rationalizations uh, and, and why that's problematic. Because you could argue they're, they're just stamped, you know. Right. This is the, this is the, this is staple stuff in war movies and TV exactly. shows that the commander well, and, 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 and has the, uh, to the stand persona up. the persona of an army officer is a selfless servant and usually um, army officers view themselves as uh, focused on two things the mission and the troops and everything we do is you know geared for the mission of the troops and so if you put down a deluge of requirements then you're harassing the troops and we can't get the mission done so it's my job as a leader is to form a shield around the soldiers and say, you know what, we, we, we're not going to spend time on what I call dumb requirements, so I'm going to say that we did them, and then we'll move on and do the important things. So there's, right there, there's a crack in the ethical uh, framework, that, but we don't view it as lying, we just view it as protecting soldiers. Or, um, for a really stark example, I had one captain tell me that, well, you know, uh, an IED, an improvised explosive device, went off, injured both lieutenants, and uh, you're supposed to fill out a report saying how big was the blast, how far away were the people from the blast, so you could measure traumatic brain injury. And he said, you know, I falsified that because I didn't want to leave that unit without leaders because they would evacuate them if I put the real numbers in there. And I didn't want to have my soldiers without leaders. And so he said, so I, I told a lie on that one. Uh, other officers said, you know, we couldn't get hot showers for our soldiers in Afghanistan. The only way I could get them was to get this money and finagle it through the system, and it wasn't right, but we got hot showers for the soldiers. Um, so those are – you could sympathize, you could empathize, but what it does is it, it creates a culture where ethical fading kicks in and you start becoming numb, uh, and then the dangers of all that start kicking in. Well, the, the word I like that you used is – that they would use is prioritizing since I can't – or triage would be another word. I can't do everything, so I have to make a, ch a choice. And to hear them tell it, naturally, they, they err on the side of the troops. You know, if I have to make a prioritizing decision, I'm going to make sure they get the hot showers. I'm going to make sure that the lieutenants are, are still in place. But that, of course, leads to potentially uh, destructive decisions in other situations where rationalization then is, is, is letting people do what's in their own self-interest, but masquerading as, as if it's for the good of the group. Right. right, and that's exactly the downside of of and and because that's at, when you first hear that that all makes total sense, and we all just, we sometimes say to ourselves, "Well, that makes sense that you deal with it that way." But and, what and really you could happens, argue they did the right thing. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Face Wouldn't anyone dilemma. do that? Yeah. Right. That's the. But but when you really think about it, and what's nice is that uh, in the discussions it came up saying, "Well, we understand that, but here's what's going on." In other words, I didn't come up with these, but they pointed out that. When you start allowing that type of reasoning, that kind type of ethical fading, the question becomes then who decides what is right and wrong? Because in some units, they would say if we have something in the Army where you have a negligent discharge, that's where your weapon goes off inadvertently in a combat situation, like where you're back on the base and you're not supposed to have you know, rounds in the chamber and it goes off. Some units would say, well, because the, the rule is report that because we, we can't have that happening. Some officers said, well, you know, we wouldn't report it. We would just cover it up. Other officers would say, you got to be kidding me. That's a breach of discipline. You have to report that. Uh, if you don't report that, something's seriously wrong. And what that shows is as soon as you start allowing these types of ethical fading decisions, the question becomes who decides which ones are allowed and which ones aren't. 
and then because everyone becomes an expert then everyone gets to judge and then there is no standard the other thing it, it literally puts you on that slippery slope is that it suddenly becomes an example that other people will use to justify their decision to not tell the truth and so then it heads down the slippery slope um, and then the, the third one is that exactly what you pointed out it masks those people who are making unethical decisions because of self-interest because we could say well, what's the difference between a person that did that for themselves because they wanted to look good or did it for the troops or did it for the mission but then it, looking at the big macro level what it really does is it it's the seed that starts feeding this hypocrisy in the profession where we think we are so ethical but our day-to-day dealings we fall victim to this ethical fading and that hypocrisy we can't feed it because it just creates this uh, this false image of ourselves where we deceive ourselves. Yeah, I want to come back to that later because I think uh, you know there's a whole bunch of interesting issues here related to how culture emerges um, in, in an organization like this of this magnitude and size and tradition, and there are a lot of currents running underneath the surface that they're going to be affected by these kind of these kind of. Um, changes. I, I just want to go back to the negligent discharge example for a second. So the people who would say, oh, I cover that up, they would justify it, I assume, by saying, well, I don't want this uh, person below me to be punished for exactly. just, a, just bad luck, or just an accident. But of it, was, course, it was an honest mistake. But, so, yeah. but it also, I assume, reflects badly on the officer when there's numerous negligent discharges un, under his command so as a result, uh, his own self-interest there is coming into play. It's not really could. just for the. It could be, you know. Oftentimes it's not. Uh, I talked to some people saying, you know, the the unit that was replacing them came in, and uh, one of them had a negligent discharge, and uh, but they said, you know what, we, we don't want to get these guys in trouble, and they haven't even started yet, so let's not even report it. Yeah, well, that's dangerous, obviously. Um, let's talk about storyboarding for a minute. Explain what storyboarding is for those of us outside the military. Okay, a storyboard is, uh, it used to be that when you came back from a mission, you would debrief uh, somebody to, so they could add it to the, uh, the files of intelligence. To, so, the, so every time the next person would go out, they wouldn't go out cold. They would know something about it. And so that's evolved into using PowerPoint uh, to show uh, graphically what happened, it, to put in pictures, to put in narratives. And uh, so it, it'd create a storyboard of this is what happened when we went out the wire of the base and this is who we ran into and then this happened and this happened and and it's required in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, for leaders who would go off base and so what happened though is that started becoming an administrative burden and uh, and so you'd have leaders going out and nothing significant in their mind would happen and yet when they came back they said you need to create a storyboard and it would take up their time. And so there was some, a tendency for some officers to say, okay, this burden is going to keep me from preparing for my next patrol. So I'm going to use information I collected from the last storyboard I created, or I'm just not going to tell them about how, uh, what happened, what the insignificant things on this patrol that happened. And, uh, so storyboarding became very, it's really a visceral uh, thing to a lot of officers because a lot of people know exactly what I'm talking about when I say, so tell me about storyboards. They know either that... <laughs> look down yeah, at their shoes. Yeah, <laughs> or others would say, yeah, it's out. that's crazy that some people you know, um, didn't tell the truth on those. Because some people said, no, those storyboards must be 
it's critical those things must be honest because we're talking about intelligence. We're talking about, you know, uh, but the other people, it's like there was such an admin burden and nobody cared. And who knew where they went? Because I never heard any feedback whether they were good or bad. Um, yeah, so it was a good example of some people said you never tell, tell a lie on a storyboard. Other people saying they don't go anywhere. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it reminds me of a friend of mine in the sales business who would complain about his superior. He'd always after he'd have to write up every sales call, every sales report. He says, right. "Now I'm trying to make sales, and I've got this this burden of paperwork to keep me from doing doing more business." So, I don't know how honest some of those reports were, but what strikes me about the storyboarding example in the military is, you know, we talk about the fog of war, and you read about any classic battle. I I always think about uh, Lee at Gettysburg, where he he only has the vaguest idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. His, his cavalry is. Um, What's his name? Uh, Stuart. Stuart. Stuart right. is is gone off somewhere. So he, we, that's his sort of uh, social network, and he's he's been stripped of that. So he's trying to piece together from all kinds of noise. He's trying to clear out the noise to try to figure out what's actually going on in the battle. And similarly, when we're trying to evaluate how something is going in this complex situation, say in Iraq or Afghanistan. This is the fundamental information on the ground. It's what, you know, Hayek called the particulars of time and, and space and place. And uh, it's very valuable. But, of course, if it's not accurate and worse, it's if it's being cut and pasted from previous episodes, it's um, it obviously it's exactly it, what it should be. Exactly yeah. right. I, I've got to read this. I got to read this quote from the paper uh, from one of the participants um, who's, of course, justifying uh, being dishonest on this. He says, where do they? Where do the storyboards go? They're going to a magic storyboard heaven somewhere, where there are billions of storyboards that are collected or logged somehow. After doing hundreds of storyboards, I honestly can't tell you where any of them go. I send them to my battalion level element who does something with them, and then sends them to some other element who actually puts them on a screen in front of somebody, then prints them out and shreds them. I don't know. So that's close quote. That's the down on the ground. That's his justification for what's the point. There's no, you know, it doesn't. It ends up in. Exactly. No, no man's land, so there's no reason to be accurate. Right, and so the distance uh, from the consequence of, of being unethical is, is so far that they don't see it as an ethical decision, and that, that contributes to the ethical fading. An important thing to note here, though, is that all these requirements to do something, uh, they're all well-intentioned. Somebody someplace said, you know, we have a, we have a, a potential problem that we need to solve, and the way we could do that is by creating a requirement. And the problem is that we have so many people doing that, that and no one saying stop. There's no appetite suppressant for these uh, good ideas that the people down on the bottom, start their shoulders start aching from carrying so many of these requirements. Uh, but they're all well-intentioned. There is no evil person. There's no dishonest person. There's no... Uh, person with a malintent trying to create a culture that does this. That's the irony. Yeah, and I, you know, I have some contact. I just want to say I, I spent a day at, um, at West Point talking uh, to the econ professors there and, and teaching a few classes, and I was just struck by how incredibly devoted the faculty was to the students learning something. <laughs> Right. Uh, I wish I could say it was commonplace in the non-military institutions I've been in. It's uh, it's a rarity, unfortunately, and they care deeply about uh, the outcomes. And I'm sure the people who who've put many of these procedures in place, there's a good reason for every one of them. 
but there's not necessarily someone who's wondering about the entire the universe right. of, of burdens that are that are being put there. Right. Uh, we forget about uh, that that we're dealing with humans. That's and, I think uh, it's important. I think to remember and is that uh, I think most people assume when regulations are put in place, whether it's um, Environmental Protection Agency or the Occupation Sa- Safety and Health Act, OSHA, uh, or any kind of law that regulate any kind of legislation that regulates uh, behavior, either as consumers or sellers, everybody, strangely to me, presumes that they're enforced 100 <laughs> percent and complied right. with. And one of the one of the, I think the valuable lessons here is to just to keep in mind that you know you mentioned earlier it's something of a microcosm. Uh, for society as a whole, you know, there, there's no doubt that most of us are breaking some kind of law at some point in our life. I'm, we're having this conversation on April 15th, uh, <laughs> which is tax day. That's a good point. Right? And they have – there have been studies. I don't know if they're done for humor or seriously, but I, I'm not surprised if they're true for serious reasons, where they ask, you know, tax experts to fill out somebody's tax return. And the – There'll be eight people, and and seven of them will come up with totally different answers for that one set of tax uh, facts because right. the law is vague. And that we're not talking about dishonesty. We're not talking about compliance, uh, honesty. We're just talking about complexity. And I assume that's part of the story too. I assume it's not just oh, this is a pain in the neck. I'm just going to make this up. There are probably times when it's not obvious what the answer is, and they just check a box because you got to check a box. Right, um, but but even there, you're heading into uh, rationali- rationalizing um, because it's so complex, uh, and and sometimes though it's it's not as complex as we want to say it is. Uh, we just say it's so complex, and the fastest way through it is just to check a box. Um, yeah. well, I, I think a more a more uh, a more blatant example that is happening just today is if you look at Atlanta, um, we had correct. teachers there that felt the pressure that you need to turn these schools around. And so they convinced themselves maybe the best way to do that is through cheating. And, you know, that's, a, that's an exact example of uh, well-intentioned rules, requirements, uh, good people, and yet uh, what happens when uh, their ethics go unchecked because they convince themselves that they're not doing anything wrong. Yeah, they're doing it for the children. Um, yeah. Really is very dangerous. I, I was going to read one more quote, which I just um, – which is really special. Um, this is, again, where after some conversation, people would concede that something wasn't quite right. Here's the quote. Likewise, most former battalion commanders admitted that in their roles as data receivers, many of the slides briefed to them showing 100 percent compliance – or the responses given them for information requests were probably too optimistic or inaccurate. For example, one colonel described how his brigade commander needed to turn in his situation report on Friday, forcing the battalions to do theirs on Thursday, and therefore the companies submitted their data on Wednesday, necessitating the companies to describe events that had not even occurred yet. The end result was that while the companies gave it their best shot, everyone, including the battalion commander, knew that the company reports were not accurate. Yeah, that was, uh, and that's actually not that unusual because if it's due on Friday, everyone backs it off a day, and uh, and it's it just shows the how quickly we could say, well, that's a dumb requirement, and so you don't need to be truthful in it. it the rationalizations come very quickly on that one. We also went to the Pentagon and talked to the receivers of information there. Now, there's people who got the reports and said, do you 
how much do you believe the reports? And, and there they said, well, you know, they give it their best shot, but we know it's not always true. And so we asked them, so well, why, do you, how do you, how do you know that? <laughs> well, how do you know that? And they said, well, we used to be there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not, we weren't, you know, born yesterday. We used to be there. We used to do the same thing. And that's what it became obvious. Like, what have we created? Uh, this facade of, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you what you, I think you need, you want me to say, um, but I'll tell you the truth on other things, but other things I think I'll fudge, I'll massage, I'll hand wave. And then the people receiving it say, I know that you did that because I used to do that. And then, but we all go our own ways and the briefings happen and everyone goes away happy from the meeting saying everything looks fine. Yeah, I was actually, I, I, I was reminded of the former Soviet Union where the, the joke was, uh, we, <laughs> we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. But the, the real um, analogy there would be that I would, uh, and I've talked to people who were, who lived in that, in that society, in that culture, and, you know, there'd be a factory and they would, everybody understood all the way up the line that the output of that factory was not accurate as it was listed in the in the report. So the mm-hmm. the people on the line were, would be asked, how many nylon stockings did you create this week? So they'd lie because they had to meet their quota. And they'd, use, they'd tell that to the foreman or the manager who'd pass it on up to the factory that would then claim a certain number of units had been produced across the whole factory. That person knew it was a lie. <laughs> that person would pass right. it up. The chain to the you know the commissar of of stockings or whatever the the person was, and um, everybody in the system understood that it was a lie, and they kept they just kept kept going. Right, and that's but the, you know in, in in at least in my research that I did here, nobody wants to call it a lie though. Um, they because when, as soon as you bring out the word lie, then then suddenly the ethical hackles go up. Um, but if you call it something else. You know, our best guess or what they wanted uh, or feeding the beast, um, then that's more acceptable. Um, because you talk to any army officer and, and, and say, do you lie? Now, of course we don't lie. Um, a, uh, a more common example of this whole thing is, uh, you know, we do our officer evaluations and uh, usually officers get rated once a year. And before the evaluation period. By whom? Period, By whom? Stu- who, does, who does the evaluating? Oh, usually there's a raider and then a senior raider. So it's the boss and then the boss's boss. And, uh, but before the rating period starts, you're supposed to sit down with the rated person and say, okay, let's go over your goals and what we expect of you. And then you're supposed to sit down with that rated person every quarter. So every three months, they're supposed to sit down. Well, that's really hard to do. Yeah. And so what happens is that thousands of forms get turned in and you have to initial every time you got counseled from the beginning and each quarter, um, but nobody ever gets counseled, and yet initials get put there, signatures get put there, and dates even get put in when I counsel the person. And it's almost become routine that just put in a date as long as it's not on a weekend. Because um, that, that, that would show that it was a lie. <laughs> that it's really not true. But everything else is acceptable. And so it's a very strong uh, example of how we've just said, this, well, this is just the way you do it. Um, again, it's not because people are looking for self-advancement, it's just because, well, to get it through the system, you have to fill in these blocks and then initial. So let's, let, me, um, let me push back against the worries here. Let me um, suggest that this is maybe not as big a deal as, as you're making it. Um, really, what is the big deal? So the forms get filled out incorrectly. Um, is it really, it, it, it's, a, it's a paperwork-heavy system, which is a tradition in the Army that you know, goes back a long time. It's no big deal. It's always been that way. 
Uh, obviously, people do the best they can under pressure. What's the big deal? I mean, is it, does it really affect a decision that somebody makes in combat? Does it really affect how things get allocated? Uh, this is just uh, a bunch of background noise. Right. And that was always the fear in the back of my mind saying, is, 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 is this just the way things should be? Is this the way things, things have always been? And is this the way things will always be? And is, is there just a acceptable level of uh, dishonesty that, 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 will, that doesn't hurt the profession? And, uh, but then what I started realizing is that, you know, there's several factors that are kicking in that make it so this is not acceptable. Um, first, we already went through the other ones, you know, um, who gets to decide what is honest and what is dishonest or where do I get to lie and when I don't get to lie. Um, we don't ever talk about that. We don't ever talk about the slippery slope of how my lie is now used as justification for someone else's lie uh, or the fact that it covers up self-interested lying. Um, but what's going on in today's army is that two things are critical. And one is that we're undergoing a downsizing. And when you undergo a downsizing, there's there's pressure on keeping the best. And that pressure is felt by the force. Um, and so suddenly competition goes up. Zero defects starts kicking in. Hmm. And people don't want to look bad compared to their peers. And so what that does is it, it accentuates this drive towards perfection, this drive towards um, not being totally upfront with the way things really are and then presenting this masquerade. The other thing that's kicking in is is that we've, uh, the Army is very digital. Uh, it's become digitized, so we use... It's so easy right now if I say, uh, how many people have done this? Now get out your ID card, digitally sign it, and then send it back. Um, and so that becomes very easy to get compliance. And so what you see is that our system looks for that compliance verification very quickly, and so now today's officers are deluged with sign this, sign that, comply, verify compliance with this. And so the numbing is getting much more accelerated than in the past. In the past, you know, we didn't sign that many things. We weren't asked to verify so many things because we didn't have the technology. So you, could, you put in that technology that they're being asked to verify so many things so fast along with the competition, it's a lot of pressure on the bottom uh, officers to, to fall into, well, I'll just tell them what they want to hear. And so, so it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this on Econ Talk is, that, again, in any organization, whether it's in the government or it's a private organization, there's always a challenge of implementation um, and follow-through and monitoring and compliance. And I think it's very tempting to just uh, assume it's not relevant. A, a friend of mine was telling me that, uh, that you know there was a new curriculum put into – into her school and uh, for math. And um, then, of course, the people in the school wanted to evaluate whether it was successful or not. Did test scores go up or down? They just assumed that once the new teachers and old teachers had been trained in the new curriculum, that would be the curriculum. But some of the teachers didn't like the new curriculum, and they just didn't bother to teach it. <laughs> they used their old techniques with the new book, the new exercises, but wow. that wasn't what they were used to. They didn't like the new stuff, so they just, you know, come on. You know, it's like uh, when the new math came along, a lot of older teachers just said, well, this doesn't make sense to me. And my students are, and of course, I'm doing it for the students. Right. I'm not going to confuse them with these new techniques. I'm going to use the old ones. So when you go to evaluate efficacy or effectiveness of these techniques, and this is the real issue, stuff does get digitized, and we get these 
I think, overblown claims for the power of data. Uh, if the data aren't act, forget – I mean the, the biggest issue that we talk about here a lot is, is the complexity issue. It's still going to be difficult to disentangle causal effects. I don't care how much data you have. Uh, in fact, the problem gets, sometimes even gets worse because you have more data, more types of data, and it's very difficult to know what's important and what, what you can ignore. But the other issue is, is the data accurate or not? And if it's systematically biased, of course, uh, you're not going to get accurate measures. You'll have people trumpeting the success of the program. Oh, we, we put this new thing in and, and we have 100% compliance. But if it's not accurate, uh, you're not going to measure what you think you're measuring. That's exactly it, is that our indicators, not only are they not reflecting what's really going on, but are they even measuring what you think is going on anyway? And so, um, and so what I, one of the recommendations, and we had three recommendations in the, in the study, and the final one is that you, you need to lead truthfully. And that means that uh, at the highest levels is that, you know, maybe you can't rely on those statistics. You can't rely on those indicators. You can't rely on the briefing charts that you might have to. Uh, say, well, we, we, ideally we'd, have a, we'd like 100%, but you know, maybe we'll be satisfied with 85 But it also means that you, maybe you can't measure everything. Maybe sampling is the answer, is that take a sample and see what's going on out in the forest. Or audit, or like they used to do in the old days, send down a leader mm-hmm. and have the leader go down and observe what's going on. But instead of relying on, uh, tell me that everything's fine. It's sort of like if our kids came in and you said, did you clean your room? Well, what do you want the kid to say? Uh, so, you know, another thing could be is just go look in his room, see if he cleaned it. Uh, we need to return to the role of the leader. But what we've done is we've allowed the system to substitute for leadership. Uh, but the role of the leader is to go down and check. The role of the leader is to go make sure things are okay and uh, not rely on indicators so much. Uh, but it also requires people on the ground at the bottom to tell the truth and to say, you know what, I, I couldn't do 100%. I only got 89%. Um, but I'm telling you to the truth right now, and uh, this is where it is. We need the courage from the top. We need the courage from the bottom uh, to tell the truth. Well, let's the talk about two- yeah. Go let's ahead. talk about all three recommendations. So they're acknowledge the problem, exercise restraint, and lead truthfully. Right. So let's talk about them. So acknowledge the problem. Uh, this is a very hard thing to talk about because none of us want to say, "Yeah, I don't always answer truthfully," or uh, "Yes, I've been content with a lower standard because I just don't think that downloading uh, songs." from YouTube is unethical. Uh, you know, we convince ourselves, but we acknowledge the problem that it's, I do that and then, uh, and I've condoned it. Then we start to address it. So the first recommendation is, look, we have to talk about this as a profession in the army. Um, we're just like our society and we need to talk about how we've lowered our standards uh, within our profession here. The second thing is exercise restraint. And this is at the top levels. Every time, uh, there's a concern, uh, High-level leaders cannot create another requirement for those throughout the force to undergo some other kind of training, to have another online course, to uh, do another uh, form to fill out. Um, Even though they're all well-intentioned, we need to exercise restraint and start pulling things off the plate instead of keep piling things on the plate. So that's exercise restraint. And then the leading truthfully, that's at the top again, uh, need to be content with not 100% all the time at the top but on the bottom, be willing to tell the truth and uh, suffer the consequences that might come from saying, uh, I didn't get 100% on that. So I found out about your paper from a member of the military who thought I'd be interested in it, but wasn't sure if it was a good topic for, for econ talk. And yet, uh, as listeners can tell, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by what you found, and it it's ties into so many different aspects of 
of topics that we deal with here. It's just an unusual application. Uh, one of those is how culture emerges. It's not something that we steer or uh, create from the top down and emerges from the bottom up. And you talk a lot in passing in the paper about just how those incentives are there for people to comply with a culture that's not fully honest and is actively dishonest at times. But the flip side of that is that changing a culture is very difficult. Once this has become standard operating procedure to uh, fudge or explicitly lie about what's going on, you find uh, just to take your recommendations, those are not going to fly by themselves. If you sent this out to every officer in the Army, uh, they're not all going to say, yeah, I'm going to change. This is a mistake. You might have some effect, not saying it's a waste of time, but the question of how you get from here to there, how you get back some of that honesty and trust is a very challenging one, and I wondered if you've thought about it. That's exactly right, um, because it's you have to be upfront with people saying, because everyone has this drive to uh, to not be the one who... Uh, who stands up and says, all right, I'm going to tell the truth. And and the other nine out of 10 people don't say anything. Um, that requires, it requires everybody to jump on board. And, uh, and so that was a big concern is that maybe nothing will happen because the culture is so strong, uh, to appear to be the person that complied with everything, uh, that will never change. But I've been extremely encouraged that this, uh, study has been embraced, uh, by the highest, level of leadership in the army down to the bottom. And that's what's required is that it, it can't be uh, the top just saying, okay, we need to change. And just, you know, there'll be theories in use and theories espoused. We, we can't do that anymore. Um, and I was concerned that just the bottom would do it, but nothing would change at the top. And then you'd have a lot of casualties, but it doesn't seem to be that uh, situation right now. What it seems to be is that it's being embraced by everybody. Everyone's working together saying, okay, look, we can't let our profession go down this path. We need to take care of it now. So I'm, I'm more encouraged. It seems to me the, the challenge here is that there are two cultures side by side, uh, one of which is, uh, I think, in the head of an officer, well, there's, there's my real leadership, which is what I do on, a, on the actual mission, what I do when I'm actually training my troops on how to deal with, with their weapons. These are life and death issues. You don't fool around with those. Then there's the, oh, I got to, you know, keep the boss happy. I got to fill out the paperwork. And sure, on that, I'm not going to really do it as well as I should, but I can't and it doesn't matter. It's not important. No. All the rationalization we've talked about. So what, what intrigues me, one of the things that intrigues me is this interaction between these two cultures. So you have, on the one hand, this culture of, of, of trust and integrity that is has to be rock solid or the whole thing falls apart. And that's the in the heat of battle, when there's, when there's life and death issues, uh, there has to be 100% compliance as, as, as much as is humanly possible. There's going to be errors, of course, but you, you, the last thing you want in that situation is, uh, is strategic negligence, strategic dishonesty. There has to be total honesty. doesn't mean people don't make mistakes in the heat of battle. Of course they do. But there has to be a belief that the people who are leading you are doing so with the highest level of, of intention of doing it correctly, and the people who are following are doing the same thing. And yet, at the same time, side by side, you have this other – you've got to compartmentalize it, it would seem to me, if you're an officer. You've got to say, yeah, this is different. You know, that's not me. That's just that, – that's, <laughs> that's right. It, right? That's the part that, when they – That's s- exactly it. It's, and I, I refer to that in the study that there's an alternate reality. 
um, is that it's and, and the army has, has two competing identities. One's a profession. That's the one you were talking about right there about the trust. The uh, this is it's for the mission and the troops. The other one, the army is also a bureaucracy. And that is, look, we need to control, we need to make sure these things happen. And those two identities often clash. The problem is, is that we live most of our time in the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. That's where, that's where your, your thought patterns and your, your culture gets developed. And, and we kid ourselves if we think that when we shift over to combat, that suddenly everything that you've been living with, all the ethical fading and the rationalization, suddenly that all goes away and suddenly I'm a different person to live in this other identity of the, the army as a profession. And so what this says is, you know, we, we understand what we need in the, the, the trust, but we need to extend that trust to all of the identity that we have that, you know what, when we're not in combat, we don't want to exercise ethical decisions that are wrong. Uh, we need to start exercising the same persona across all spectrums, all identities of this army. Well, Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments wrote that man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. We want people to respect us. We want them to honor us. We want to have a good reputation, and we want to be lovely. We want to be praiseworthy. We want to be, res- we want to be worthy of respect, worthy of honor, worthy of the reputation of, of having being a person of integrity. So it strikes me that in your initial interactions with the officers, when you confront them with the possibility that they're that they're dishonest, of course they're going to respond and say, well, of course I'm not, because their self-image, which comes from that other side, the profession side, exactly. has to overwhelmingly always be that I'm a person of integrity because I have the lives of 150 people in my hands. And it, I wonder about you know, how you push the honorable side, and, and people will self-deceive relentlessly, as you, as you saw. They will tell you that they didn't do anything wrong, I had to do it, I didn't have a choice, and as you point out, they're in a tough situation. They, in some sense, literally didn't have a choice. They had to at least, they couldn't do all the training. The question is, they're gonna, they're gonna, are they going to lie about whether they get, did the training or not? And the answer is sometimes they will. So the question is, how do you push uh, loveliness into both parts of the experience rather than hoping it can be compartmentalized or, or be, be involved with self-deception? And it strikes me, and I've, I've talked to some members of the military about this in other areas where they're struggling with compliance of various kinds, uh, you know, to lean on, Adam Smith talks about the impartial spectator. What would somebody say looking over my shoulder who wasn't me, who wasn't, didn't have a stake in the matter? And I think that persona, that strategy is what keeps the professional side of the army uh, at the highest level. It's the understanding that there's a code of honor, there is a code of integrity, and uh, it's just, I don't know if it's, if it's possible to keep them compartmentalized uh, that way. And I think obviously you're trying to do something about that. Right. And that, and I think we started our conversation uh, with, as I tried to point out that the, the whole army profession is based on a, a foundation of trust, uh, trust within it, but also trust with the American society. And uh, it will not be a profession if we lose the trust of American society. And so we can't ignore the fact that there's an erosion of that foundation on this dark side that none of us want to talk about. Uh, this, this part of the army, that, the, the bureaucracy part, the, the uh, just getting things done part, the, the way to do business, uh, the letting, things lo- you know, letting things slip with the little white lies, um, we can't allow that to start eroding. That's what we see. Is it's, it's eroding. It's not like a, uh, a giant crack in this foundation, but it's a slow erosion. And uh, 
and you know, it's, if we come to grips with it, if we say to ourselves, you know, we're not perfect, we're humans, we are susceptible to temptation. We're kidding ourselves if we don't think that. Uh, then I think then the ethical foundation gets solidified and, uh, and we remove the distinction between this compartmentalization that you're talking about that, um, because compartmentalization allows us uh, to avoid the glare of the ethical spotlight because we push it off in that little dark box and say that, you know, the ethics really don't apply in that world. And, and we have to say, yes, they do everywhere. And, you know, another way to see this, and you know, this is very true in capitalism generally, is you want people, uh, we had an interview with David Rose on this, he emphasizes the importance of not, uh, exploiting every opportunity. We want to live in a world where the people we're dealing with are not going to, going to take advantage of us, even if they can. And we That's understand a good, there's yeah. a temptation to, but I think the risk of the compartmentalization is, is that where you draw the compartmental boundary uh, is going to change over time. Or by individual. Or right. by individual. They're going to have different places where they draw it, and they're going to say, well, this is okay because everybody does it, or this is okay because it's really for the troops. When in or fact, we might be kidding ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> exactly. it's much better to go in the other direction and uh, relentlessly uh, avoid dishonesty and, and, and be a whole person, right? Right. It, nobody, exactly right. It's, you know, you talk about hypocrisy. It's, the real danger <laughs> of hypocrisy is, is you fool yourself into thinking there's none. And right. then where that boundary is is, is very malleable. And even, you know, integrity means being one, being one person. And yeah. that's all this is, is get rid of that compartmentalization, be one person. And that's an ethical person. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, uh, we've convinced ourselves because um, we listen to a lot of the, uh, our, our professional self-talk about how we are above. Well, we should, we strive for that and we are above, but we are still human. Now, there have been, there've been a number of scandals in the military in the last five or 10 years. Uh, do you have any reason to think that, that there are more than there used to be? And I'm thinking about in general, and you can see it at one point in the paper, mandatory requirements uh, that are impossible to comply with. That's an old story. It, it goes back a long time in the military. In some sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Some of your findings, maybe all of them, they're, just, they're the same as they might have been 50 or 100 years ago. Do you have any reason to think that it's getting worse and that that has in turn led to some of the behavior that we see that is inconsistent with the Army's self-image of its people's image of itself themselves? Uh, it's hard to say if it's gotten worse uh, because the Army hasn't stayed the same. Uh, what we've seen with the all-volunteer Army is a gradual uh, shift towards a professional Army. In other words, uh, when you had... Uh, you know, a draft army, then we are flat out a reflection of society. But with the professional army, um, there is a conscious effort uh, to police itself. And so if it's gotten worse, it's, I'm not sure that's the right word, but what's happened is that we've allowed this erosion to occur and we need a correction. We need a self-correction. And that's part of what professions do is they correct themselves as opposed to somebody else coming in and saying, you guys are out of control. Um, and so all this study was, was an attempt at, look, as a, as a profession, we need to self-correct. Um, it's really hard to say whether it's worse than before, but I, in my mind, I think there's been a steady increase in this erosion and, uh, and we're due a self-correction. But do you think the, the, rec the reporting requirements are worse than they were 20 yes. years ago? Yes. And, uh, because of 
uh, first of all, the army is, is a, a cumulative organization. We never take anything off. In other words, uh, even if uh, the requirements uh, aren't needed anymore in a specific area, it's very difficult for the army to say, yeah, let's get rid of that requirement. The other reason is technology is that it's so much easier now to verify through digitization uh, than in the old days when we had uh, rosters or face-to-face contact. And so uh, you put those two things together and uh, it's, it's, there's a lot more uh, compliance oriented uh, issues going on uh, in the army today. Yeah, the, the cost of communication has gone way down, right? You don't have to send a letter. You don't have to, right. but well, you can send, you can an, send email an email now, right? right? Which is so it's much just, easier. Yes. How so. many people, <laughs> all it takes is a, an, an officer sitting at, uh, a staff officer sitting someplace saying, how many people did this? And that becomes a requirement. Uh, so um, it's, it's so easy to create requirements today um, than it used to be. So let's, um, let's imagine two solutions here. Solution number one uh, is you tell all officers uh, you only have to comply with 80% of the stuff that you do, uh, that you're told to do, and you figure out which are the, which are the most important 80%. Or the people at the top could say, boy, we're, we've really overburdened these folks. Let's cut, uh, let's cut the, the uh, requirements down to 80% of what they are. Uh, could they answer the question, at the t- which seems like the better system, better solutions, have the people at the top who are using the data to say, you know, maybe we've asked for too much stuff. Let's cut back. Would there be any possi- vague possibility that there would be a consensus about what, c- what you could get rid of? So, for example, if you say to me, uh, the government spends too much money, uh, you, you got to cut 20%. I could do right. that relatively easily in ways that would be politically impossible, but I think not so bad for the nation as a whole. I know what I could get rid of. The 20% would be easy. 50% is a little more challenging, but 20% right. I could do. Uh, do you think the people at the top in the Pentagon and elsewhere could figure out some of the requirements? You say you know, it's, it, it, they never take anything away. Right. They could, could, it's, if time. They, if it's time. It's, so it's time. Would there it's be time some, to take away. Would and, there be some consensus? It can be. It's possible, and the the encouraging thing is, is they they are starting to do that now. In other words, I've had people from the Pentagon contact me, saying, "Look back when you did your study ten years ago. How did you come up with so many requirements, and what methodology did you use?" And I had to give that to them. And so right now, there's people sitting down saying, "What have we created? What have we put on the backs of company commanders? Um, what is what is?" Uh, the, when you look at the totality of all the requirements we put on people, what is it? So they're trying to get a handle on it. Down at the bottom, there's discussions going on everywhere on uh, can we tell the truth on what we actually have complied with? And so you put the two of those together, the people at the top reducing the burden, people at the bottom saying, look, I'm going to tell you the truth. You may not like it, but I'm telling you the truth because that's more important. Um, you put those two together, I think you'll start to hear cracks in the culture. Did some of your sessions uh, include people from the bottom and the top? No, I never. That would be an interesting... I tell you what, no. If you want a silent session, yeah, <laughs> yeah, put put the bosses in there with the people. Because who's who's going to in front of the bosses say, yeah, you know, all the briefings we gave, we always gave it a green. It was really red. No, no one would say that. But um, what I could imagine is a session with the bosses and the officers on what would be the most important and. Things that yes. they could honestly respond to. So it seems right. to me one way to change this culture would be to convene a host of these where people would talk. Maybe they have to wear masks. Or maybe it's an <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm not kidding. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, you could uh, do it. Maybe or, online. 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 Right. Yeah. And say, 
these are the things I never tell the truth about because of this, this, and this. Uh, here's what I'd be willing to tell the truth about if you changed the way you did it. Right, um, right. That would be a way. But, you know, it's going to come down to it. It'll never be a consensus. And that's what's the nice thing about the Army. It's built on leaders. It's going to require a leader to make a decision um, because it'll, you'll never get a consensus. So somebody, right, somebody's got to take a stand. Exactly. Someone's got to say, saying, look, I'm going to have to risk my political uh, capital by telling this political appointee who said, we really got a problem with this in our society. You need to put this kind of training in, in the army. I have to tell him, we'll do that next year or we'll do that every other year. Um, because right now we can't do that. It's not a good time. Yeah. Um, it's never a so, good time. Yeah. Right. And so it's going to require someone to, you know, expend some political capital. So um, you say it's been well received. They're presumably not, been- not, not straight, not not from the very beginning. From the very beginning, I got a lot of pushback because people just read the headlines and where it says army officers lie. Um, but that when you say a lot of pushback, is that four emails or forty or uh, a lot of? Hey, you guys have really uh, you know created a firestorm, um, and so not not forty emails, uh, but enough that. But then once people started reading the actual study, then things changed. And then gradually the senior officers then started um, pushing the study, and then things really changed. Uh, talk about the U.S. Uh, Army War College. What is it exactly? It's not a, is it a place where you go to study? Okay. To get a degree? Uh, like a, so, like yeah, a, I'll, I'll tell you. In, in this profession, you, know, you, you have people entering as far as officers – they come in after graduating from college in ROTC or West Point. They go to a, uh, a basic course that teaches them how to be an officer in whatever specialty. That usually lasts about three and a half months. Um, or actually, yeah, three and a half months. And then they move on from there. After about five years, they go to another course that lasts usually about six months that gets them ready for the next level of leadership. Then when they hit about 10 years, they go to a year-long school out of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, that gets them ready for mid-level management. By the time they get here... They're 40-year-olds, they're lieutenant colonels and colonels, and they're ready to move on to the strategic level of leadership. And so they, they get a master's degree here, and what it prepares them to do is to start not looking at just military, but also diplomatic, informational, uh, and economic uh, instruments of power in national security issues. And what do you teach there? Uh, I'm a researcher, so I supplement the, the teaching here by looking at strategic issues. And do you have interaction with the students? Yes, I have interaction with the students. And, uh, I, you know, I give talks and they come in and uh, we bat things around. And I'm always here to support them. Um, but yeah, my primary role here is the research professor. But I do a lot of talks. And how many faculty of either kind, research or teaching, are there there? Uh, let's see. For researchers, we've got about a dozen. Um, and they cover everything from, you know, our Asia specialists to uh, – to people who look at uh, strategy. And then uh, on the teaching faculty, you know, I don't exactly have a handle. I think it's like a 250. How old is it? Uh, this is the second oldest continuously manned uh, Army post in the Army. The first one's West Point. So Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, has been here for a while. The actual War College, uh, it goes back to uh, um, the mid-1800s. You see early early stages of it, but uh, I think we're, if you really look at it, it goes back to the 1900s, and it started in Washington, D.C., and then moved to here. Do you ever bring in um, people from other armies outside the United States for training? Do they come there? 
I think right now we have 60 international officers in the class. Wow. So it's, uh, we have a lot of international officers here. And your career path was, you, you were an officer. I graduated from West Point and I was in the Army for 20 years. And then I became a research professor here. And you went out and got a PhD. The Army sent me for a PhD so I could teach leadership at West Point. Wow. And what's, uh, what's in your future? I'm glad you have one. When, you know, when, when somebody sent me the paper, I thought, well, this can't be online. I thought, I thought maybe, you know, <laughs> know, the first thing I did when, 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 when I received the paper was I Googled it to see if I could actually access it legally because I, I just sort of assumed that, that nobody would publish this publicly. No, that's, that's it's somewhat embarrassing. Are, yeah, people are, like I said, we're a profession and, and people are surprised that, um, that we're willing to police ourselves. And this is one of those, it was essentially a call for that we need a self-correction. No, we don't need Congress to tell us to do this. We need to do it ourselves. And that's what professions do. Um, so this is just part of um, the Army being a profession. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it wasn't an underground publication. It was, uh, it was published by the Army War College. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a secret. It was out there. Yeah, and we will put a link up to it. I hope it stays live for a while. Um, but what do you what do you what are you interested in next? Is this something you think you're going to stick with for a while? Or no, you know, I'm not an ethics person. Um, I study organizations. Uh, you know, my background's organizational behavior, and so that's uh, you probably could hear that from my discussion. I, I look at the army as an organization, and the army as an institution. Where what topic do I pick up next? Uh, Russ, if you got a good one, just let me know. And uh, I'm always looking for you know what angle I'm coming in at next. I, I focused a lot on developing leaders and uh, on are we producing the right type of leaders, how are we interacting with society and things like that. My guest today has been Leonard Wong. Lenny, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was my pleasure, Russ. Thanks. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.